Could it be that God is calling you and me to become involved in the greatest revival in the history of the human race? Four hundred ninety-three years ago, Sunday passed. A young German monk strode through the red and yellow leaf-strewn village square in his hometown perched on the side of the Elba River. In his eye, a steely glint of determination, clutched in his hand a freshly crafted, by his own hand, document. He strode to the bulletin board of the university where he taught, happened to be the door to the campus church, and with hammer in hand, he affixed into that wood his 95 theses, 95 challenges to the ruling theology and church of the dark and middle ages. Little did he know that with every hammer blow, he was igniting the spark that would set ablaze the inferno of what we still remember as the Protestant Reformation. A few moments ago, we sang what became the battle hymn of the Reformation, Luther's own composition, a mighty fortress is our God a bulwark never failing, a helper He amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing? 493 years ago, 130 years ago, a little woman five feet two inches tall was brooding one day over the life ministry of this Martin Luther. And clutching a pen, she began to spread and inscribe and ink words upon a manuscript that would eventually become a part of that apocalyptic classic, The Great Controversy. Let me put the words on the screen for you. Precious was the message which Luther bore to the eager crowds that hung upon his words. Never before had such teachings fallen upon their ears. The glad tidings of a Savior's love, the assurance of pardon and peace to His atoning blood, rejoiced their hearts and inspired within them an immortal hope. At Wittenberg a light was kindled whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth, and which was this light to increase in brightness to the close of time, end quote. Could it be... That the prophetic ministry of that little woman named Ellen White was raised up by God to play a pivotal role in this reformation that would extend to the end of time and the return of Christ. Could it be you and I have been called to have a part in the greatest revival in the history of this planet? Open your Bible with me, please, to some broad-stroked depictions of that revival. The Bible's last book, the book of Revelation. You've got to see this for yourself. Open your Bible, please. Revelation chapter 12. 
You didn't bring a Bible, grab that pew Bible in front of you. You need to follow this. Take a look at this painting on the canvas of the apocalypse. Revelation chapter 12. If you grab the pew Bible, it would be page 829. Those of you sitting up here, glad to have you. Look at the screens above and below. You'll be able to follow along. All right. Revelation chapter 12. Let's drop to the very bottom of that, uh, that chapter. Chapter 12, verse 17. By the way, I'm in the New King James Version, which is the same translation as the Pew Bible today. Revelation 12:17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Hit the pause button right there. Dragon. Who's this dragon? Come on. Well, you read the chapter, you just drop back to verse 9 and you, you discover that the great dragon was cast out of heaven once upon a time, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. It's the fallen rebel angel Lucifer. Apocalyptic symbol, the dragon. And the dragon, read it again, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with a woman. Hit the pause button again. Who's this woman? Tell you what, you spend a little time in Revelation chapter 12 and it becomes crystal clear. The woman represents the faithful of God, post-Calvary, in the history of Christianity. That's who she is. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, moving to the very end of time. The old King James calls it, and the remnant of her seed. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are they who keep, number one, the commandments of God? Number two, who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12 in stunning apocalyptic symbolism describes the history of Christianity post-Calvary all the way through to the end of time. There will be a community at the end of time that will be noted for its twin passions. Radical passion number one, obedience to the law of God, His commandments. It would include the ten. It would include the fourth commandment. It will be, therefore, a Sabbatarian community, whatever community this is. Twin passions, passion for radical obedience to God's commandments and a passion for allegiance to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what's this testimony of Jesus Christ business? The phrase is used six, time, six times in the apocalypse. What's it mean? John doesn't leave us in the dark. Turn, turn just a page, just a little page farther to uh, chapter 19. Chapter 19. He's not going to leave us in the dark. Chapter 19, drop down to verse 10. There's been an angel messenger that has been bringing to John the visions of the apocalypse. He's been talking to that angel in these visions. He now is so overwhelmed by this angelic being that he responds by worshiping it. Notice the response of the angel. This would be verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. Oh, whoa, we are both created beings. We don't receive worship from each other. No, 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 no. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Oh, there's that word. Worship God if you want to worship. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That point is so critical. I wish you'd grab your, your study guide that's in your worship bulletin today and let's jot it down before we get past it. Grab your study guide. You have it in front of you there in your worship bulletin. You didn't get a study guide, our ushers are coming your way. All the way up into the balcony, please, ushers. And those of you in overflow, just put your hand up. We'll make sure we get a, a study guide to you as well. And by the way, I want to say to those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. You can have the same study guide. 
Here's what you do. Go to our website. Put it on the screen for you. There it is. You see at the bottom of the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. You're looking for the series entitled The Gift. All this semester we have been examining the gift. The gift of prophecy. From the gates of the Garden of Eden all the way down, woven through Scripture to the very, to the very end of time. You're looking for the gift. This is part seven. By the way, if you've missed any of the previous parts, right there at that website, you can get the podcast, the videocast, everything's there waiting for you. But you're looking for today's teaching, and it's entitled, Ellen White, How Did It Really Work? Last week, in the midst of this series, we plunged into a critical examination of the life ministry of Ellen White. We're going deeper today. You've got to get the study guide. You're going to want this. Where you see study guide underneath uh, today's teaching, click on there and you'll have the identical study guides. So let's go. All right, everybody have it? Hold your hand up. I should still come in your way, but we've got to move. Study guide. The apocalypse declares Revelation 12:17. Here it goes. The final community of God's faithful will be, jot it down, please. Number one, radically obedient. Radically obedient to the commandments of God. That would include the fourth commandment about the seventh-day Sabbath. You'd expect that in the community at the end of time. And number two, radically loyal. Radically obedient to God's commands. Number two, radically loyal to the testimony of Jesus. So what's the testimony of Jesus? We just looked at it. Revelation 19.10. Keep your pen moving. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the prophetic gift. All right? Spirit of prophecy. Write that in. Whatever this testimony of Jesus is, it is the spirit of prophecy or the prophetic gift. You say, Dwight, I'm not sure about the prophetic gift part. Let me assure you, that's a correct interpretation. In fact, watch this. Just turn, turn one more page, maybe two pages in your translation to the end of the Bible. That would be Revelation 22. Poor John. He is so enraptured by this celestial being, an angel, that he repeats he repeats what he was warned not to do in chapter 19. He falls down again to worship the angel. And the angel has to repeat what he told John in 19. John's forgotten it already by chapter 22. This would be in uh, verse 9. Then the angel, then he said to me, here comes the repetition, almost identical wording except a slight change. And it's the slight change that's the clue we're looking for. And he, the angel, said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant... Now, in 19, he said, I'm your fellow servant of those who have the testimony of Jesus. Now, notice what he says. I am your fellow servant of your brothers, the prophets. And of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. See what's going on here? Over here, chapter 19, he says, hey, listen, I'm of your fellow servants, your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Over here, he says, I'm of your fellow servants, your brothers, the prophets. Absolutely clear. That the testimony of Jesus is linked to the ministry of a prophet. In fact, would you jot that down, please, in your study guide? Revelation 22.9, 22, the spirit of prophecy is manifested to the ministry of a prophet. Write that down. How does this, this testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy thing work? It works through a prophet, through the ministry of a prophet. Keep your pen moving. Clearly, therefore, God's final community of faithful on earth, will have the ministry of a prophet in their midst. Jot that down. You say, okay, okay, Dwight, okay, look, okay. So, that's fine. fact of the matter is, there are spiritual communities all over this planet who boast the presence of a prophet in their midst. So how in the world are you supposed to figure it out? I mean, come on, some of these, some of these manifestations are in blatant contradiction to each other. How could it possibly work? 
Yeah, it's a bright question. Good question. So how's a thinking mind to determine? No wonder God makes this very unusual command. You probably have, haven't read it before. But He makes this command in the New Testament. I need you to see this for yourself. Don't just read it on the screen. Let's just go back to the little book, First Thessalonians. Because it's going to take you so long to find First Thessalonians, you're going to want to read it off the screen. But don't do it. Just force yourself to find it. You can do it. You can do it. Uh, by the way, the page number. Now you wish you had the Pew Bible. It's page 796. All right. First Thessalonians. Just a little tiny book. Chapter 5. Three imperatives. Just boom, boom, boom. One-liners. Watch this. Paul, the brilliant and mighty apostle writing here. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul writing. He says, hey, Christians, do not quench the Spirit. Okay, the Spirit is going to be at work, moving among the community of faith. Don't throw water. You know, you try to put a fire out, you throw water on it to quench it. Don't throw water on what the Spirit is doing. Let it go. Watch the Spirit. Verse 19, here comes verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Don't despise them. It's almost as if he were writing to us third millennials. Don't despise prophecies. Finally, verse 21. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Paul's saying, hey, you, you third millennials, watch out for your third millennial knee-jerk skepticism that dismisses all manifestations of the supernatural as anti-intellectual or pseudo-metaphysics. No, don't you do that. Test the manifestations. Check them out. See if they are right or wrong. And then follow your mind and your heart, holding on to what is good. Yeah, but how am I supposed to know? Come on, how am I supposed to know? Did you know that there are four tests, at least four tests, given in Holy Scripture, whereby we might determine the veracity, or the lack thereof, of the gift of prophecy? Four tests. Because let's face it, we're living in a time when there are a lot of quacks and fakes out there. Every time I go to Walmart with Karen, I love to get up to the checkout line where she's doing the, doing the business transactions, so I'm falling behind. Because I want to check out, you know, these supermarket tabloids? First thing I do is I make sure none of you is nearby. <laughs> Once I'm sure that you're not shopping in Walmart today, I pick that little thing up. I gotta read this. Whoa! Predictions for two, 2011. You gotta be kidding me. The world is filled with quacks and fakes. We have to know. So there are four tests. Here we go. Fasten your seatbelt. Four tests that will separate the authentic from the counterfeit. Four tests. Jot them down. Let's go. Test number one, Isaiah 8, verse 20. The word of the true prophet is in agreement with the word of God. In agreement. The true prophet. The word will be in agreement with the word of God. Let's put it up on the screen. I'm not going to read the rest of the verses out of Scripture. We've got to fly. Let's put Isaiah 8:20 on the screen to the law and to the testimony. Now, the law is the Torah. Tends to be, people tend to think of this as the writings of Moses. The testimony, technical word, refers to the writings of the prophets. Okay? So, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Gerhard Fondel. Put his words on the screen for you. He wrote the book, Prophetic Gift. 
You see his words there? Every true prophet, I like this, every true prophet has made the writings of previous prophets the benchmark. I like that. Every true prophet makes the previous prophets the benchmark for his or her own ministry, end quote. The teaching of anybody who claims the gift of prophecy must be judged by the objective standard of the Word of God. You check it out right here. If they do not agree here, there's no light in them. You've got to match. You've got to be in agreement, in harmony, with the objective standard of the Word of God. All right, that's test number one. Here comes test number two. Jeremiah 28, verses 8 and 9. The prediction of the true prophet comes true. This is the one you and I are most familiar with. Hey, did... Did what he said come true? Did what she say come true? Immediately, that's how we determine the, the authenticity of the gift. In fact, let's put it on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 28, where God gives this test. The prophets who have been before me, this is Jeremiah speaking, and before you of old, these prophets prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. But watch this. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace... When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Yeah, we're familiar with that test. But I have to tell you, this test is a bit more complicated than it first appears. For example, Nostradamus. You ever heard of that Parisian, that French physician? Died in 1566. Nostradamus. Supposedly predicted the great fire of London in 1666 with his quatrain. That's a little four-line rhyme. A century earlier, let me read the quatrain to you. The blood of the just will be demanded of London, burnt by the fire in the year 66. End quote. So, does that make Nostradamus a prophet of God? How about the Irish seer, Cairo? Cairo twice warned the journalist W.T. Steed in 1894 and again in 1911 that he would drown in April 1912. Twice he warned them. W.T. Steed drowned in April 1912 for he was a passenger on the Titanic. Does that make Cairo a true prophet then? How about Jean Dixon? You ever heard of her? Our own homegrown Jean Dixon, 1956. She predicted the election of a Democrat as president of the United States in 1960, but that he would be assassinated in office. Guess what? John Kennedy was elected president, a Democrat, and was assassinated in office. Does that make Jean Dixon a true prophet of God? No, God says through Moses in Deuteronomy. No, 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 no. Hold on. We're not going to look this up, but you need to write this down. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4, you check it out later, declares... You see this in the study guide? That test number two, making a correct prediction, is only valid if test number one is true. That the prophet is speaking in harmony, total agreement with the Word of God. In other words, here's where you fill it in. Fulfilled predictions must be matched by the prophet's genuine harmony. Harmony with God's Word. All right? Look, the devil himself can make predictions. And he can make his predictions come true. Can't he? Yeah, so you don't want to just make predictions, kind of your, your benchmark line for interpreting the, the uh, gift of prophecy. All right, test number three. Let's go. First John 4, verses 1 and 2. The focus of the true prophet is on the truth about Jesus Christ. Would you write that down, please? The truth of Jesus Christ. If this prophet is genuine, the prophet will be focusing on the truth of Christ. Is that really in the Bible? Sure it is. Let's put it up. First John chapter 4. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test. Here it goes. 
Paul tells us to test. John comes along and says, you've got to test it. Use your brains. You've got a bright IQ. Use it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets, that's the big deal. False prophets have gone out into the world. Now watch this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Ah, no wonder. Keep your pen moving. No wonder Revelation defines the end-time manifestation of the spirit of prophecy as the testimony of Jesus. It's got to be. Any genuine gift at the end of time has to be saturated with Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the next one. Jot it down. A genuine prophet at the end of time will be saturated. Right in the word saturated. Will be saturated with the truth about Jesus. That he is the incarnated God. That he is the atoning savior. That he is the mediating high priest. That he is the divine judge. And that he is the soon coming deliverer. Four tests. Four tests. And you've got to put all four up. Here comes number four. The last one. Matthew 7. Verses 15 to 20. We spent some time with this last week actually. By, by the way, if you, did, if you weren't here for last week's teaching, you've got to get it. It's, it's just a series of stories. Get a hold of last week's uh, podcast, videocast. All right. Fill this one out. Here's test number four. The life and influence of the true prophet demonstrate the fruits of the spirit of Jesus. They call this the orchard test. I like that. The orchard test. What kind of fruits growing on this tree? Somebody just make that up? No, are you kidding? From the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself made it up. Jesus himself calls us to exercise test number four. These are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus goes on. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Would you jot it down, please? A prophetic ministry that bears the fruits of the Spirit demonstrates its divine authority and corroborates its divine calling. Has God's fingerprints all over it. If it's bearing the fruits of the Spirit, divine fingerprints all over it. How did Jesus put it? Therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. Okay, so Ellen White. Let's talk about her now. How, 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 does she, how does she measure up this 19th and early 20th century wife who was a mother, who was a homemaker, who was a visionary, who was a church leader, who was a public speaker, who was an intrepid traveler, who was an institutional builder, who was a best-selling and most translated American author in history? How does her prophetic life ministry stand up to these four compelling tests of the genuine gift of prophecy? Let's find out. But before we do, I need to share something fascinating. You're going to, this is good. This is going to, you're going to say, wow. Watch this. George Barna. Have you ever heard of George Barna? The, the uh, celebrated Christian demographer? I think most everybody knows George Barna. So I subscribe to his uh, newsletter. So I'm reading his newsletter. And I'm reading, he, he's, he's, he's conducting a survey in this newsletter because he's big on surveys. It's a survey of American clergy to determine what pastors considered the most influential authors and the most helpful books they had read. So he's going through all of this. I'm reading the newsletter and then Barna shares his discovery that for pastors, now listen to this, pastors under the age of 40, that would be most of you, you're not pastors, but under the age of 40. For pastors under the age of 40, 
He found out what they were reading. This will catch you by surprise. I'll put, I, I don't want you to take my words for it. We'll put it on the screen. And in your study guide, you have the website address. You can check it out for yourself. The under 40 pastors championed, isn't this interesting, championed several authors who were not ranked highly by older church leaders. Those authors included business consultant James Collins. You've heard of Jim Collins. Good to great. All right. Seminary professor Tom Rayner. 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon Ellen White and Pastor John Ortberg, end quote. Isn't that amazing? A national survey of all denominations, a national survey of pastors under the age of 40 discovers that this little five-foot-two-inch woman's life ministry is continuing to bear fruit in the third millennium. Isn't that amazing? But as we apply these four tests, I wish you'd keep in mind that Ellen White never called herself a prophet. Put it on the screen for you. You need to fill this in. She's she's writing here. Others, she writes, have called me a prophetess, but I have never assumed that title. I have not felt that it was my duty thus to designate myself. I regard myself as a messenger. Write that in. I regard myself as a messenger entrusted by the Lord with messages for his people. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, she did not seek the prophetic office. You can't find one prophet, genuine prophet, who ever sought the job. If you knew what went into the job, you would never ask for the job. She never flaunted her spiritual gift. She never boasted of her calling. Quite the contrary. Listen to this. Seventeen. She's just days into being seventeen. And she is wrestling with this overwhelming sense of inadequacy, sensing God's call to prophetic ministry. And she is pleading with God, release me from this ministry, please. You can't be you can't be serious. These are her words. Put it on the screen for you. In my second vision. About a week after the first. She's just 17 by three weeks old. She's 17 plus three weeks In my second vision, about a week after the first, the Lord gave me a view of the trials through which I must pass and told me that I must go and relate to others what He had revealed to me. It was shown me that my labors would meet with great opposition, if she only knew, and that my heart would be rent with anguish, but that the grace of God would be sufficient to sustain me through all. For several days and far into the night, I prayed that this burden might be removed from me and laid upon someone more capable of bearing it. But the light of duty did not change. And the words of the angel sounded continually in my ears. Make known to others what I have revealed to you. End quote. And so this 17-year-old girl resolves that by the grace of God... She would be faithful to his life calling for the rest of her life. A 70-year life ministry from the age of 17 to 87. So, does Ellen White pass the four tests of a genuine prophet? Let's find out. All right? Test number one. What's test number one? Remember, Isaiah 8:20. The word of the true prophet is in agreement with the word of God. Let's find out. So, I brought a couple of her... Classics into the pulpit with me. I want, I want, to, I want to show you the uh, scripture index that appears in the back of most of her books. 
This, this, this first one, and I want a camera to come on up here, please. This, this first book is the classic, classic, for me, the greatest book I've ever read on the life of Christ. I've, I've read numerous books on the life of Jesus, but this is The Desire of Ages, all right? So what I want to show you, now I don't want you to watch the screen. Don't watch me. Watch the screen. I'm going to take you to the Scripture Index. These, these appear, I don't know how many times I've read this book. It's just a powerful, powerful book. But I'm going to take you all the way to the back. Okay, here it is. Here it is. Watch this. Okay, can you see this? Can you see the word scriptural index? Can you see that? All right, look. What follows are all quoted references to Holy Scripture. These are not allusions. <laughs> that number would be, uh, who knows? These are just direct quotes. So I decided, okay, I'm going to count them. And so I went, I said, okay, here, here, and here, and here. All right, whoa, here, 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 here. Then I counted this column right here. I said, okay, let me just take an average column. Let's just say I got 40 in this. I multiplied the columns. 960 scriptural quotations in this single book. I'm going to show you another book. This book is the, uh, this classic, this apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy. I want to show you, where is it in here? I want to show you the same. All right? So you've got the, you've got the scripture index right here. By the way, I want to say much more about this book. This one next week. When we look at the critics next week. This one, all right? So here they are. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. There, here, 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 here. And you see my scribblings up here. There's something on the back. But I said, okay, 15 times 40, 600 plus 90 on the back. 690 scripture quotations in these two classics. What's test number one? That the true prophet will speak in harmony with the Word of God. This is from uh, the Great Controversy. Thank you very much. This is from The Great Controversy, the introduction to uh, The Great Controversy. I'll put it on the screen for you. She wrote these words. The Spirit was not given. Do you see that on the screen? The Spirit was not given, nor can it ever be bestowed to supersede the Bible. For the Scriptures explicitly state that the Word of God is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. You always go to the Word, the bedrock, bottom line standard by which everything. By the way, every spiritual gift, not just the gift of prophecy, every spiritual gift, speaking in tongues, healing, everything, it has to be tested by the Holy Word of God. I tell you what, there is no false prophet in the history of the world who would subordinate his teaching or his writings to the absolute authority of the Word of God like that statement just does. Everything, every, everything, subliminated, subordinated rather. To Holy Scripture. All right, that's test number one. Test number two. What's test number two? Jeremiah 28, verses 8 and 9. The prediction of the prophet comes true. All right? September. September 1, 1902. Ellen White wrote these words. I'll put it on the screen for you. September 1, 1902. Well-equipped tent meetings should be held in the large cities such as San Francisco. For not long hence, these cities will suffer under the judgments of God. San Francisco and Oakland are becoming as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord will visit them in wrath. End quote. All right? Four years later, four years later, on April 16, 1906, she received a vision. Here's her description of the vision. Put it on the screen. While at Loma Linda, California, perhaps you've heard of that place. While at Loma Linda, California, where our uh, medical university is, April 16, 1906, there passed before me a most distressing representation. 
During a vision of the night, I stood on an eminence. Okay, some, some kind of outcropping up, up, up on a hill. I stood on an eminence from which I could see houses shaken like a reed in the wind. Buildings great and small were falling to the ground. Pleasure resorts, theaters, hotels, and the homes of the wealthy were shaken and shattered. Many lives were blotted out of existence, and the air was filled with the shrieks of the injured and the terrified. End quote. Two days later... At 5.12 in the morning, April 18, 1906, a 270-mile section of the San Andreas Fault slipped, generating a massive 7.7 to 7.9 magnitude earthquake that destroyed the mighty seaport of San Francisco. I'll put a picture. Can you believe they have uh, black and white pictures? That's the city right there. Went to Google and got that picture. While that picture's up, I need to tell you, property loss was measured at a rate of $1 million every 10 minutes. And this is a century ago. $1 million losses every 10 minutes for greater far than the earthquake devastation were the raging fires that swept the city. The loss of human life was numbing. Telegraph lines went wild and the rumors began to spread. Chicago is in flames. New York City has been destroyed by a tidal wave. It was the panic of doomsday. Let me share another prediction with you. 1890. Some of you historians know this to be true. In the 1890s here in the United States, there was a prevailing millennial fever. Kind of a a self-confident, collective spirit that our nation and, and that our world were on the eve of a millennial age of peace and prosperity. 1890. In an utterly countercultural and counter-social way. Ellen White picked up a pen and wrote one of her most sobering predictions. These words appeared in Signs of the Times magazine, April 21, 1890. Put it on the screen for you. The tempest is coming. And we must get ready for its fury by having repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will arise to shake terribly the earth. We shall see troubles on all sides. Thousands of ships will be hurled into the depths of the sea. Navies will go down and human lives will be sacrificed by millions. Fires will break out unexpectedly and no human effort will be able to quench them. The palaces of earth will be swept away in the fury of the flames. Disasters by rail will become more and more frequent. Confusion, collision, and death without a moment's warning will occur on the great lines of travel. The end is near. Probation is closing. Oh, let us seek God while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. End quote. And of course, nobody had a clue, an inkling, That the facade of impending millennial peace would be shattered by World War I in 20 years. And after World War I, 30 years later, World War II. Entire navies were sunk. Millions upon millions perished. Death on the great lines of travel. Who would have thought that automobile automobile deaths would number eventually a half a million a year? Well, it's true that the dominant work of a prophet is not foretelling. But it is rather forthtelling. Prophets don't spend their time trying to come up with predictions. No. The dominant work is not foretelling, it's forthtelling. It's giving nurture, it's giving guidance, it's giving warning, it's giving exhortation, leadership. While it's true that forthtelling is the dominant work, the fact of the matter is that nothing grabs the human attention more powerfully than a prediction come true. I mean, could it be? 
that the prophet speaks about God and what the prophet speaks, I should be obeying. Test number three, 1 John 4, 1 and 2, the focus of the true prophet is on the truth about Jesus Christ. I testified last week that of all the authors I've read in my lifetime, none has been more Christocentric, more Jesus-focused than Ellen White. But then we probably ought not to be surprised since the apocalypse describes the gift of prophecy at the end of time as the testimony of Jesus Christ. No surprise. My friend Merlin Burt, who is the director here on campus at Andrews University, director of the Center for Adventist Research, has been a tremendous help. As I've been doing my researching and reading, I've had conversations with him, and he shared with me a paper that he read this July in Europe. I want to read a line. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Merlin Burt. If it is true that Jesus gave his own testimony through the prophetic gift as explained by John in Revelation, then it is imperative that we listen. The testimony of Jesus, as Revelation calls it, the testimony of Jesus brings us redemption and by his loving guidance in a world broken by sin and suffering. It brings redemption. It brings loving guidance in this dysfunctional and broken world in which we live. Merlin shared with me, as he calls it, one of Ellen White's most touching and spiritually compelling letters. It was written to her twin sister. We learned about her twin last week. Her name was Elizabeth. They called her Lizzie. Most of her adult life, she was not even a Christian. She's dying. This is the year that she dies. Ellen writes to Lizzie. The letter was was never published and it was intended to be personal. I'm going to read a line or two from that letter. Put it on the screen for you. Dear Lizzie, and then a few lines go by. Let's pick it up. I love to speak of Jesus and His matchless love. And my whole soul is in this work. I have not one doubt of the love of God and His care and His mercy and ability to save to the utmost all who come to Him. Don't you believe in Jesus, Lizzie? Do you not believe He is your Savior? That He has evidenced His love for you in giving His own precious life that you might be saved? I pray most earnestly that the Lord Jesus shall reveal Himself to you and Reuben. Dear sister, it's no wonderful thing that you have to do, some spectacular act that you have to perform. No, 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 no. But there is one who died that you might live through eternal ages. Just believe that Jesus will hear your confession, receive your penitence, and forgive every sin and make you children of God. I long to take you in my arms and lay you on the bosom of Jesus Christ. With Jesus as your blessed friend, You need not fear to die, for it will will be to you like closing your eyes here and opening them in heaven. Then we shall meet never more to part. End quote. Test number four. Matthew 7, 15 to 20. The life and influence of the true prophet demonstrates the fruits of the Spirit of Jesus. Okay, look, here's the question. Was Ellen White perfect? Was she flawless? Was she sinless? Hardly. She made mistakes. She had character weaknesses. She was fallible. And we're going to examine that fallibility in a special way next week. But the trend of her life was such that upon her death, a newspaper. Okay, this is not a church paper. This is a city newspaper. 
commenting on her death. The St. Helena star near where she died. The St. Helena star carried this story entitled Call to Her Reward on July 23, 1915. I'll put the words on the screen for you. The life of Mrs. White is an example worthy of emulation by all. She was a humble, devout disciple of Christ and ever went about doing good. Her death marks the calling of another noted leader of religious thought and one whose almost 90 years were full to overflowing with good deeds, kind words, and earnest prayers for all mankind. How did Jesus put it? By their fruits you will know them. 493 years ago today, the Protestant Reformation was ignited by Martin Luther. Nearly 500 years later, the Reformation still goes on. In her apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy, she writes, The Reformation did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. It is to be continued to the close of this world's history. Luther had a great work to do in reflecting to others the light which God had permitted to shine upon him, yet he did not receive all the light which was to be given to the world. From that time to this, new light has been continually shining upon the Scriptures, and new truths have been constantly unfolding. Thus it is that the apocalypse predicts that at the end of time, God would raise up a community of faithful whose mission would be to take that truth to an entire generation just before the return of Christ. And the same apocalypse, by the way, predicts that to assist in that mission, there would be raised up within that community someone with the prophetic gift to point the church and the world to Jesus Christ Himself. I believe that Ellen White was that messenger of God And I believe that her life ministry fulfills the four biblical tests for the authenticity of the gift of prophecy. You say, ah, but Dwight, what about those who don't believe? I'm aware. Next week, we'll deal with the critics. Don't miss next week, please. But right now, it's just you and me. All I can ask of you is that you taste the fruits of her ministry for yourself. Read her writings. And I believe that if you do, you will believe as well.